Vision with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast, episode 166. I am Jana, and today we bring you an interview with one of the keynote speakers from last month's International Conference on Intelligent Robots and Systems, IROS. But first, as always, here are the news with Christine. Thank you, Jana. If a robot is intended to improve people's lives, it shouldn't be expensive, right? Louis Garcia, a recently graduated mechatronics engineer, doesn't think so. He has created Hello Spoon, which is a robot that looks like a small blue elephant with a robotic arm-like trunk that has a spoon on the end. It uses a spoon to pick up food and feed people with upper limb difficulties during mealtime. The main difference between Hello Spoon and similar mealtime robots is cost. Hello Spoon is much less expensive. This is largely because it uses a user's smartphone to cut production costs. The smartphone sits as eyes on Hello Spoon's elephant-shaped head and performs processing and acts as a speaker and microphone for the robot. With this combination, the robotic elephant can react to voice commands, feed the user, and dance once the user has finished eating. To build the first 100 Hello Spoons and jumpstart his initiate to build affordable service robots, Louis has launched a campaign on Indiegogo that is open until October 16th. Good luck! For the first time in the United States, the Federal Aviation Administration announced that it would grant six film companies exemptions from existing regulations in order to fly commercial drones for television, motion picture and internet video. What makes this approval important is that the exemptions are effectively the first commercial drone regulations besides the flat-out no policy. The exemptions provide clear instructions about what can fly, when it can fly, where it can fly, how it can be flown, and who can fly it. For example, drone operations must have a licensed pilot in command. Non-authorized persons are not permitted within 100 feet of the drone, and all operations must have advanced permissions from the regional FAA Flight Standards Office and local authorities. Gary Mortimer, who is the editor of suasnews.com, said... If the FAA lets Hollywood skip past ASTM F-38 and the military surplus rule, it might do everybody a favor when more widespread commercial RPAS regulations finally happen. For more information about assistive robots and FAA regulations, visit robohub.org. Computer vision was an area of immense interest to roboticists in the early days. However, since the 1990s, when affordable laser rangefinders became available, the two fields became somewhat disjointed, with laser-based perception dominating robotics 
and processing images from databases, dominating computer vision. Peter Cork is Professor of Robotics and Control at Queensland University of Technology and Director of the Australian Centre of Excellence for Robotic Vision. At this year's IROS conference, he gave a keynote entitled The Quest for Robotic Vision, tackling questions about the link between robotics and vision and whether it is time for roboticists to reconsider vision as an effective sensor. He later spoke to our interviewer Aldro to dive deeper into the history and future of computer vision and robotics and about his upcoming massive open online courses. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Peter Cork. I'm a professor of robotic vision at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Can you tell me the goal and motivation behind your research? My main motivation in research is being able to give robots the ability to see. And I use see in a very strong sense of being able to see like human beings see. It's more than just taking a picture and beating it to death with a computer vision algorithm. I'd like to speak on the same point as your talk this morning. Sure. Uh, can we go back to the history of vision? The history of biological vision? Biological vision. Sure, and this is something that I've been learning a lot about the last few years, and I find it totally fascinating. There's been life on this planet for about 3.5 billion years, but the sense of vision evolved really quite late, around 600 million years ago. And very shortly thereafter, there was a great flowering, blossoming diversity of life on this planet. And there's really interesting speculation about was this massive diversity of life triggered by the fact that organisms learned how to see? I find that a really exciting possibility. But the reality is, around 550 million years ago, eyes started to evolve quite rapidly. We saw the early compound eyes, lensed eyes like ours, many other sorts of eyes. Simultaneously, there was what paleontologists call the Cambrian explosion. And so we can argue about the causality, but certainly eyes developed really quickly and life on Earth exploded in diversity at the same time. And when do we get the first eye that is anatomically similar to a human eye? This looks like it appeared around 500 million years ago in creatures that today we'd probably call eels. Uh, There are modern animals called lampreys, which are eel-like creatures, and their eye is anatomically the same as our eye, and all the evidence points to that happening around 500 million years ago. So our eyes are quite sophisticated. We often held up as you know, examples of, of perfection uh, in, in design. But you know, it's, pre- it's pretty old stuff. It's quite surprising. Mm-hmm. Going to computer vision, what are some modern applications? So computer vision, I think, started off in artificial intelligence laboratories in the 60s, and at the time they were concerned with very simplistic and contrived environments, a famous thing called the blocks world, where the whole environment was brightly colored blocks and robots had to pick them up and move them around. In the last decade or so, computer vision has made enormous strides. 
they've really pioneered the use of machine learning techniques. They've done a lot of work on face recognition, for instance, uh, is a problem that you could consider solved. I know when I return to Australia, it's a machine vision system looking at my face, opens the gates and lets me into the country. It's no longer an immigration official, right? It's an algorithm that says, welcome to Australia. So, which I think that's a, that's a pretty good testament to that kind of capability. And the other things computer vision people have been looking at are human action recognition. So here's a picture of a person. What are they doing? Walking, waving their arms, building something. They've made great progress there. A lot of progress in what's called multi-view geometry. So how do you take pictures of the same scene from multiple locations and reconstruct the three-dimensional structure of that environment and also the path that the camera took through that environment? You know, they've done photo mosaicing, stitching, uh, image retrieval. There's really a vast number of activities that computer vision people have turned their, turned their attention to. Mm-hmm. However, within robotics, we're shifting away from computer vision, or have been, uh, with LiDAR and similar sensors. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. It's quite interesting if you go and look back at the history. Computer vision and robotics started in the 60s inside artificial intelligence laboratories, and they evolved sort of together and you know, people were demonstrating vision-controlled robots from you know, quite effective ones from the 1960s, the robot like Shaky, the Moravec cart, and into various self-driving car projects in the United States and, and Europe. Basic self-driving cars on roads from the 80s, very early 90s, I think it was this wonderful experiment uh, in the European Prometheus project, uh, the work of Ernst Dickmans from, from Munich, where they drove a car from... I'm pretty sure it was from Munich to Copenhagen and back, uh, reaching speeds of 175 kilometers an hour, and this was done using just vision. So, you know, everyone talks about the Google car, and you know, Google have invested a lot of money in it, and they're finessing it, but you know, the idea of self-driving cars guided just by cameras, uh, which you argue is what human beings do when they drive a car. Human being is a machine guided by a camera who turns the steering wheel and pushes the pedals. Um, they were doing that with computer vision systems and computers uh, way back when. So going back to LiDAR, can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So although there was this really phenomenal early progress with using vision to control robots, I think in the early 90s, robotics researchers got a little frustrated with the problems of using computer vision. And these problems are manifest. Uh, One is just dealing with all the artifacts that it exist in the real world, things like shadows, things like appearance change as the light, uh, as the sun goes up and down in the sky. Sometimes it's covered in snow, sometimes the leaves fall off the trees. The world keeps changing its appearance, even though geometrically it is unchanged. And this is a big problem for computer vision. Now, human beings are smart enough to be able to factor all that stuff out. Uh, We're not yet smart enough to develop algorithms that can factor that stuff out. So the roboticists, I think, got frustrated. They just wanted the geometry. So LiDAR sensors uh, in the 90s got down to a price point where it was feasible to put them on robots instead of cameras. And they gave what we call metric information. It gave you position of points in the world you know, in real units of centimetres. And uh, didn't worry about whether the sun was up or down, was dark or, dark or daytime. And uh, roboticists sort of fell in love with them and really have been using them ever since. And I think this is actually a loss for the roboticists. It didn't bother the computer vision people one whit. And they've just gone on and done all those awesome things that I was talking about before. Uh, 
I actually think that they could be more effective if they had robots holding and moving their cameras. But anyway, they've soldiered on without us, and we're stuck using laser rangefinders, LIDARs. So what are some limitations to LIDAR? The LIDAR is a fantastic tool for giving you the geometry of the scene. So fundamental output is what we call the point cloud. You know, a sparse collection of points in the world, each of them's got an X, Y, Z coordinate. From that, you can do things like extract uh, dominant planes, a ground plane, walls, whatever, parked cars. All that stuff's pretty easy to do from that rich geometric data. What you're lacking is things like color, like texture, uh, which you get in spades from a color image of the scene. And I don't think that the LIDAR information is nearly rich enough to do the sort of tasks that robots need to do around people. I don't think it's rich enough to be able to recognize people, to recognize people's expressions, to understand what people are doing and what they might be going to do next, the, you know, trying to predict human intent. So great for geometry, but I think poor for all of the other really important things that modern, modern and future robots are going to need to do. How does it fare in terms of computation? It's an awful lot better in terms of computation because a sensor basically gives you this three-dimensional information straight away, where if you try and do that using stereo, you've got to get images from two cameras in your computer and do an awful lot of math in order to uh, grind out the three-dimensional geometry of the scene. So the laser rangefinder is, is more expensive than cameras, but you're going to do less back-end computation. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a bit about uh, robotics and computer vision? Sure. So, as I said, you know, robotics and computer vision grew up together. Vision was, for a long time, the dominant sensing modality for robots. It's become less so in recent times because of the, uh, the, all those advantages of LIDARs that we talked about. But I think there's beginning to be a bit of a resurgence uh, with the use of cameras for robots. And part of, part of that is that LIDAR sensors are relatively heavy, uh, they're relatively power hungry. So there's been a phenomenal amount of research in recent years in quadcopters. And quadcopters you know, it pushed lots of areas of, of robot technology. The one thing you say about quadcopters is that they can't carry very much payload. And so you can put a LIDAR on there, but you're going to really pay for it in terms of flight, flight endurance. So cameras weigh almost nothing. Uh, so there's been a lot of work now in putting one camera or two cameras onto a quadcopter and then revisiting some of these old robot vision technologies, perhaps from the 80s or 90s. And people have demonstrated you know, doing wonderful 3D reconstructions of scenes based on visual data captured on quadcopters. So I think this payload limitation has caused some people in our community to revisit cameras, and other people in our community are sort of pricking their ears up and saying, Oh, yeah, cameras, I forgot about those. Yeah, it's actually pretty impressive what they can do. So yeah, I'm hoping there will be a bit of a... Re- this is the beginning of a resurgence of vision in robotics. There's a few other people who've just soldiered on anyway, uh, me being one, uh, just sort of stubbornly holds the notion that, that cameras are a really fine sensor for robots. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of recent developments have there been by the community in computer vision? So the the quadcopter work that that I mentioned before, uh, there's been quite a lot of work in underwater robots guided by by computer vision. And certainly underwater, you've got a lot of pretty uh, significant challenges. To localize underwater, you can't use GPS. Uh, You can't use LiDAR underwater because the infrared is absorbed massively by the water. So really vision is perhaps one of the only 
and ultrasonics, I guess, are the only two sensing modalities you can use underwater. So I think those two application domains are, are really pushing it. Uh, I don't see much evidence of it coming back into car navigation. People like Google are pretty seriously locked into using LiDAR sensing technology at the moment. So, you know, the sensor that they use, the Velodyne scanner on the top of the Google cars, I think costs more than the car, which is a, which is a little bit crazy. Maybe that will come down over time. Uh, we won't know. But, you know, in terms of, like, the cameras that I've got in my iPhone, my iPhone's got two cameras, and they prob- cameras probably only cost a buck each. So, you know, that's the merit of using cameras. They're small, they are ridiculously cheap, uh, and they don't consume very much power. What are some challenges with computer vision uh, that need to be addressed? Lots of them, sadly. Uh, and uh, this is the reason why your know, vision is not taken has not taken off as a mainstream sensing modality for robots. It goes back to this issue that I mentioned before about the relationship between the appearance of a place and the geometry of a place. If I'm a robot and I'm navigating, I really care a lot about the geometry. And getting the geometry from cameras is difficult. But the cameras do give me a lot of other rich information. This colour, this texture, tells me about human beings and what they're doing. Uh, but at the moment, we can't utilize that information because we don't know how to process this massive stream, a torrent, if you like, of pixels that pours out of a camera. So the problem really is one of, it's one of computation. I think we have not yet the right computing architectures to process the data that comes out of cameras. And I don't think we yet have the right algorithms that we can run on that computing to pull out the information that we need. So there are big challenges in things like semantic vision. How do I look at a scene and label everything within that scene? Yeah, this is carpet, that's a chair, and that's a person, that's some sky. Uh, that's, we're making good, the computer vision people are making really good progress there. Uh, and I think it's going to be really important for robot vision systems into the future. I think that's a, a key foundation for future robot vision. So if you had to list it, what would be the key elements uh, necessary for computer vision and robotics? I think the things that we need to bring together, uh, and there's a, there, are, there are a few of these things, and each one by themselves isn't going to cut it, but I think in combination we'll get there. So one is this semantic vision, being able to take an image and, uh, and, and label all of the different elements that are within it. Another one is around context. I think that a robot vision system needs to understand the context that it's in. Is it in a house? Is it in a lecture room? Is it in a road? Is it in a forest? Because you've got different expectations of things that you will see in those different environments. It gets you into what's called contextual priming. Given a particular context, you're going to focus on looking at for specific things. Uh, another important aspect is coupling motion of the robot to vision. So we use vision to help uh, us manipulate and to, and to move through the world. But we also use our body motion to help us see the world better things are ambiguous, we move our body, uh, we move our head, whatever, to resolve those ambiguities. So I think uh, a robot vision system in the future is going to be able to do this close coupling of, of motion and, and vision. In addition, uh, it goes back a little bit to the context thing I mentioned before. If we look at the, the neural pathways in our, in our own body, from the retina of our eye, there's a whole bunch of axons which take signals back towards our brain. But there is more than that many axons come from the brain back towards the eye. So there is actually a larger back path than there is a forward path. 
And that's really interesting. So what's happening is that in our brain, I think there is some understanding of context, maybe some questions are being formed, and that's conditioning the early part of the vision system to do the right thing. And this is something we don't have in most computer vision systems or robot vision systems. It's a one-way process. You get the pixels and you work on them with this algorithm and this one and this one in sequence until you get the result. Actually, we should be using partial results to modify our processing pipeline. Interesting. So we're doing some initial processing on what the eye sees in order to determine what context we should interpret the information we're seeing as? Yeah. Am I understanding So right? perhaps you're making some initial rough hypothesis, guess at what's going in, on in there, and then you're doing some quick and dirty stuff, back in your reasoning about it, seeing if the hypotheses stack up, and if they don't, then perhaps you switch context and try uh, a, a different set of parameters on your processing pipeline. Interesting. So computer vision sounds hard. What are some resources that people can go to in order to learn? Okay, there's not as many computer vision textbooks as there are robotics textbooks, and I don't quite understand why, why that is. Uh, but there are, some, there are a number of, of good computer vision textbooks. Probably no one book is going to cover everything you need, so you may need to access a few of them. And in some of the, uh, the link material, I can provide a list of, uh, of some of these books and pointers to them. On Robots Podcast, the website, we will include a PDF that will include the, the books that have relevant material to learning computer vision. Sure. Uh, and I can also include some links which talk about how, uh, how we believe human humans see, you know, how the seeing process works. And there's a number of books from sort of, you know, books from sort of a, a general audience, an introduction to the process of seeing, to some books that are still quite readable, uh, but based on, you know, fairly recent results from visual neuroscience, uh, which, you know, perhaps interesting for uh, the, more, the more devoted listener. Now, you have a lot of different endeavors going on related to computer vision. Can you talk a bit about them? Sure. Uh, for a long time, I've maintained some, some MATLAB toolboxes uh, to assist in, in robotics, uh, ARM-type robots and, and mobile robots, and also to implementations of some standard algorithms for machine vision, uh, feature extraction, multi-view, geometry, and whatever. So these are open-source packages uh, anyone can download, but in order to execute them, you need to have a MATLAB license. And you know, I, I chose MATLAB because I find it personally a very productive environment for code development and prototyping, and it's one that certainly uh, students at many universities are familiar with. There's an awful lot of other open source code out there, uh, in written in many many different languages, but I find I find MATLAB to be the most productive environment. For, uh, speaking for myself, so those are the uh, the MATLAB toolboxes. Uh, I wrote a book. It came out in 2011. It's called Robotics, Vision, and Control. And what I tried to do was to bring together what I think are the most important concepts in robotics, mobile robots and arm robots, and also in computer vision. Now, if you like, uh, it's, a, it's not exactly a summary, but it covers material that you would otherwise probably have to scan six different textbooks for. I'm trying to bring it together into one textbook using a consistent notation and means of presentation. And the other thing I, that I do in this book that's very different to most other books is 
it's pretty light on mathematics, and that reflects as my own personal style. Uh, I'm not a particularly mathematically oriented person, so I use just as much math as I need and no more. But I also use a lot of code examples through the book. So a lot of things in the book are illustrated using lines of code the core functions that are in these open source toolboxes. So a typical page in the book will be some text explaining some stuff, there might be an equation, and then there'll just be a little snippet of code, and then there'll be a figure, which is what that code generates. So the reader can just type that same line of code into MATLAB, recreate my result, they can change some parameters, get a different result, put their own data, their own image into it and see what happens. They want to understand how the algorithm works, the source code's all there so they can open up the file and see inside it. They don't like the way it's done, they want to improve it, they can do that too. So it's a kind of a different way of presenting material to a a classic textbook. So I could describe it as a book that's wide but not deep. I think it's a good way to start and it was really aimed at undergraduate students, third, fourth year undergraduates and maybe students who were just starting out in a PhD. Uh, I think they'll outgrow it. Uh, down down the track but it's a good way to get started if you want to know you know about a slam algorithm or this kind of feature extractor you can look up the pages in the book you can just try it in a few minutes uh, you're going to get a result so instant gratification is kind of one of the the principles I was looking for when I wrote the book because I think if you can't get a result quickly maybe the students are not going to persevere we have in our field developed such a large collection of algorithms and I think it's rather daunting for people who are newcomers to the field. I think as practitioners we forget uh, how difficult and how daunting it looks to an outsider. So the idea of this book is to be to present this material in a way that's really very approachable. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps sacrificed uh, technical rigour or mathematical rigour in terms of accessibility and I think it's important that there's at least one book out there that does that. What are your future goals? Uh, future goals. I want to teach robotics and computer vision to the whole world, uh, which sounds a little uh, megalomaniacal. Uh, I'm working on two MOOCs at the moment. So one is an introduction to robotics, and the other one, uh, massive open online courses. Uh, and so one is introduction to robotics, and one is on robotic vision. So aimed again at third or fourth year engineer, engineering or computer science students uh, at university. Each MOOC is six weeks long, so it's got 12 one-hour lectures. Each lecture is organized as little clips, uh, video clips, so between five and ten minutes long. So you don't have to listen to a whole one-hour lecture. You can go through it segment by segment. Uh, segments are like narrated powerpoints they might be me explaining things sitting at my desk waving my hands and holding objects of interest uh, and there's screencasts so it's actually me sitting down typing stuff into MATLAB and you're seeing looking over my shoulder and seeing what I'm doing and I'm hoping that it's an engaging way for people to get up to speed in these in these important topics it's a project that's probably taken me about 18 months so far and the plan is that we will release these globally in February 2015 uh, and hope that you know, we get a, a great number of people signing up and hopefully they will, they'll learn something for the experience. So this course will be offered for free. There uh, little quizzes and programming assignments. There's even a, a, pra- a laboratory exercise that you can do. And uh, it sort of occurred to me recently that 
we know in some ways you no longer need to have a laboratory at a university to do the practical component of your of your course you know typically we install a lot of expensive equipment in a lab and students use that equipment for robotics now we don't actually need a lot of expensive equipment you can buy a, a kit from many online sources you can buy a little mobile robot you can buy an arm robot you can buy a lego nxt kit and build any of these any of these robots yourself so you can actually have the lab at home you can have a robot lab in your bedroom that's now quite feasible for a few hundred bucks and so one of another part of this open online course is a project component and if you, you, know, you buy the right technology, you can kind of work along and build, start with a bunch of, with your kit, a bunch of pieces, and actually build up to a working robot system that integrates vision uh, with, with the robotics part. And so a lot of online courses uh, offer credit or some sort of certificate upon completion of yeah. them. Is that in your plans for these MOOCs? Absolutely. Uh, we can't offer credit. Uh, we will offer a certificate of completion. And I think this is the, the big unknown in this whole open online course area is, is what currency a certificate of completion uh, has. Uh, is it going to help me get a job? I don't know. Can I take it to my university and cash it for credit? I don't know. And I think these are quite important issues that get glossed over in a lot of the hype around these open and, and online courses. Uh, I think it is something that has been overhyped, but I do think that it is a very valuable learning resource to, to people who perhaps otherwise can't get to university or they can't get do a robotics un, unit at the university. This is a way that they can get that. And as far as I know, this is the first undergraduate level robotics and computer vision open online course. There's three others that I know about, but they're all pitched at the graduate level. And wrapping up, what do you believe is the future of robotics? The future of robotics is, is brilliant. Uh, I think we've been, a lot of us have been slaving away doing robotics research for a very long time. I mean, the field's over 50 years old. You look at what's happening now, the vast number of robotic startup companies, like the Google's taking an interest in and acquiring some of those robot startup companies. I think people are now seeing that you, there's, a, there's a, a link, a path from doing robotics research to solving real problems in the world and maybe making a buck as well. And I, and I think people just couldn't join those dots before, but I think now we can see how you can join those dots. You look at Kiva Systems, for instance. It came from almost nowhere and transformed the way a massive company like Amazon does its business. I think that's, that's, you know, that's a wonderful example of, of what robots can do. Robot vacuum cleaners is another one. More than 10 million of them on the planet. You know, before 2004, there was no such thing as a robot vacuum cleaner. So, yeah, these applications that we can't even imagine are going to come from nowhere. We've got a lot of the essential technology. We've got a lot of algorithms. You know, we've got a, a large cohort of people who are trained in the principles of robotics. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a heady mix. So I think it's really exciting times for robotics. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. If you weren't able to attend this year's IROS, you can find more information about the topic of this episode as well as links to the IROS site on our website at robotspodcast.com. Our next episode will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.
Vision with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.